Let's take our Bibles, turn to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. We continue in this second message of Amos before the powerful, the elites of Israel. Amos continues to lay out the case, really what he's, what he's done here in this chapter, he's, he's laid out the case once again, the indictment has been laid out against Israel and then the judgments to come. And now he's, he's going to conclude this in a very specific way, one, one that, that, that involves really the, the heart of the message in many ways of the entire, of the entire book, and one of the verses that's perhaps most famous. If You may not have known it was in Amos, but you are aware of it. It's not quite as well known as John 3.16, but it's a, it's a verse that you see uh, posted at times on road signs and that kind of thing. It's one of those verses that, that maybe pops up. Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what it is thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. I think in, in simplest terms, there are two basic kinds of invitations you might receive. Good ones and not so good ones. So, for example, a good invitation. Maybe somebody invites you to a dinner party or join them on their yacht for vacation. Maybe you get an invitation to some kind of other special occasion, celebration. It could be a wedding. It could be a baby shower. It could be a graduation. Any one of these kinds of events that, that you, you might get an invitation extended to you. And then there may be a number of other examples. Invitations you receive, you think, yeah, that's, that's great. And it's something that, that you want to be a part of. It's a good invitation. Then there are not so good invitations. You get an invitation in the mail to serve on jury duty. Not such a good invitation. Maybe you receive an invitation from a superior, a boss of some kind, telling you that you need to have a talk about your job performance. Or maybe you get an invitation from the IRS, and they're sending one of their agents to meet with you to discuss discrepancies in your taxes, right? These are just a few examples. So you've got good invitations, things you don't mind receiving, maybe would even look forward to, and those that would be uh, something less than pleasurable. I think in a similar vein, you read through the Bible, you will find God extending the same two basic kinds of invitations. There are good invitations from God. 
Invitations where God invites people to to know Him and His saving work and His, His grace and in His mercy and in His love. What comes to mind is the words of Jesus. Come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and you'll find your rest. That's a good invitation, right? But then there are some not so good invitations in the Bible. Invitations that are really ones to meet God, not necessarily in His grace and mercy, but to meet God in His power and in His glory, in His chastisement and in His judgment. I think of Job. You may recall at the, at the end of Job, after Job has made some pretty significant demands of God. Granted, I, I know he went through significant turmoil and pain, but, but there, there's, a, there's a big portion at there toward the end of Job where he makes quite a few demands, There's a number of expectations. He expects an answer from God about the circumstances he's been through. And you may recall that rather intimidating moment where God then comes to Job in a whirlwind. It says, prepare yourself like a man because I'm about to answer you. Not such a good invitation. Well, I I think... Amos chapter 4, verse 12 is one of those. This is another kind of invitation, an invitation to come and to meet with God. Again, there's good examples of that, but this is not one of those. He begins by saying in verse 12, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. This, by the way, we've already talked about the rest of this chapter, so this is looking back, and if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, verses 6 through 11. Amos had laid out the various ways God had tried to get Israel's attention, various kinds of judgment. He had brought upon upon them famine, uh, drought, uh, plague. Uh, He had used supernatural means, uh, fire from heaven. Uh, there, there, There were ways in which God had tried to provide localized kinds of judgment, to to wake them out of their their sin, to draw them into repentance. But none none of it worked. Because he he, he ends all of those statements by saying, yet you have not returned to me. So verse 12, therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Meaning these things, this judgment's now going to come, but it's going to come with a greater intensity and a broader point of application. And so then he extends the invitation, prepare to meet your God. In other words, you are going to receive a revelation of God. There's going to be a depth of understanding about who he is, a depth of understanding you don't seem to possess right now, that when this is all said and done, you will prepare to meet your God. Now, this is an interesting phrase. And before we get to some of the points uh, that, that are on the outline and kind of focus our attention on verse 13, which is really kind of the, the, the essence of what he's telling them to prepare, how he's telling them to prepare, it's important to note that phrase has, has context, and not just context in Amos, context in the, in the larger covenant God had made with Israel. That very phrase, prepare to meet your God, was used first with Israel in Exodus chapter 19. That may ring a bell. Exodus 19, Israel has left Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. 
Uh, they, they have uh, been cared for and provided for by God. They find themselves at Mount Sinai. Th- this was the, the, the plan all along. This is even what Moses told Pharaoh, let my people go. God expects his people to go to the mountain and to worship him. So they're at the mountain. And now God's going to give the covenant, right? He's going to lay out the Ten Commandments, and He's going to lay out the law. He's going to engage in this covenant relationship with Israel, this people whom He loved, He redeemed. In fact, this is the chapter that describes God's love for them as, as, as like, like an eagle bearing her children on, on her wings. This is what God did for Israel. But God does tell them, tomorrow I'm going to meet you on the mountain. Prepare to meet your God. Now, that was a positive invitation, by the way. That was an example of something that was good. They were going to meet God in His, yes, His glory. There's going to be thunders and lightnings. And and in fact, the people were told, don't touch the mountain. So it was definitely intimidating. But at the same time, this was an invitation to receive God's promise. They were going to be His special people, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And And God was going to bless them for their fidelity to him. Prepare to meet God and his covenant promises. Amos is no doubt drawing on this language, except now it's been turned. It's been turned on its head. There's no doubt that they would have recognized this. Instead of preparing to meet God and to enjoy the fruit and blessing of being in covenant faithfulness with him, now Amos says, prepare to meet your God in relation to the other part of the covenant. The part where he says, if you do not do these things, here's the judgment you can expect. Now, here's then what's interesting. So Amos follows this up, extending this invitation, prepare to meet your God. He then follows it in verse 13 by laying out five characteristics of God's greatness and glory. In other words, as you prepare, you need to prepare to meet this God because this is who He is. And, and, and again, what Amos is getting at, you are about to meet God in the essence of His judgment. And so here's what it means to meet God in His judgment. Here are some attributes of God that, that should be the, the food for thought as you prepare to meet the Lord. Here, here's what it is. So, five of them. So, here's notes you can fill in, and, uh, and we're going to walk our way then through these five phrases. You may not believe this, but my plan is to get through all five. You know, I didn't say. Come on, Brandon. Now it's going to be longer than it was going to be before. All right, it's all Brandon's fault. It's like the coach that makes everybody run, all right? Next thing, you guys are going to do laps around this sanctuary. No. Five, yeah, that's a good move, Crystal. Yeah, uh, so five, the Wednesday night crowd. You got to watch out for the Wednesday night crowd for sure. Five characteristics about God that Amos draws our attention to and the people's attention to. And with, with five different phrases. So we saw it in verse, in verse 13. He who forms mountains, creates the wind, declares to man his thoughts, makes the morning darkness, treads the high places of the earth. These are the five phrases that I think speak to five attributes of God. Number one, and that would be God's greatness. God's greatness. 
again, it's not, it's not a surprise, but that, that he, he would begin by identifying God as the one of immense power, strength, greatness. So again, verse 13, he says, For behold, he who forms the mountains. Now, already hearing the word mountain, I mean, this, this, this draws up certain kind of imagery. It draws up the imagery of that which is massive, right? Mountains being the, the biggest things on the planet. Mountains also conjuring up, and this, this goes way back. It's not just a modern idea. Every generation, every culture has recognized mountains as majestic. Right? There's just, there is just something profound, whether you're at the base of it looking up at them or you're on top of it looking down from it. I mean, it's, you recognize the, these things bring with them a certain majesty. So it's not just that they speak, though, to, the, to, to like majesty. Mountains also represent something else, and this is often the case in, in the Bible. They represent that which is immovable by earthly standards, right? In fact, sometimes mountains are used symbolically as barriers. And not just barriers, but barriers that are impossible to overcome in man's power. So, so th- this, these are some of the ways that the mountains are used. So what is Amos doing here? Well, I mean, this is really a profound statement. To, to identify then God as the maker of the mountains. It, it would be this line of logic. If the mountain is majestic and powerful and strong, what's the creator of the mountain like? <laughs> right? If we, if we look at this, and we can, we can see this and what this is. Well, then the one behind it m- must then be of an infinite kind of strength, must be of a greatness and glory of which we cannot comprehend. So the first words he brings up, that, that which seems so profound to man and that which is impossible for man to move, a potential barrier that man can't cross, God is the God who formed them. Keep in mind, there's going to be some other references here to creation. Not only did God make them, how did God make them? How did He make the mountains? Just spoke it. I mean, God nearly did the least amount of thing He could have done, right? To make the mountains. He just said, mountains. I mean, you know what I mean when I say that, right? I mean, He, he, just, he just spoke it. And it, and it was. So again, this, this identifies for us something that's really profound. I also want to point this out about this because it, it comes up throughout. You'll note all of the verb tenses here. He who forms, creates, declares, makes, and treads. That's the New King James Version. Some translations may slightly vary, but so the, that's the New King James Version. Those five verbs driving the imagery here You'll note they're all in the present tense. Now, you might say, all right, what what difference does that make, except if you're kind of a grammar nerd, and these kind of things you think are important? Well, one, if you think about mountains, is, is, are, there, are there brand new mountains popping up all over the place? Now, I know some of you think, well, there's volcanoes. I was, there's going to be a snark. All right, I understand, but you know what I mean. They're, like, the mountains are set, right? It's, 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 not, it's not like we're going to have Rocky Mountains number two, all right? God's not popping that over top of... Uh, Nevada. So, so we understand 
These things are created, but how is he speaking of them? He's speaking of them as if God is still in his sovereignty controlling them. Not just he who formed the mountains. He who forms, and as God has ongoing ruling authority and power over them. And again, all of these bear that kind of sense. This present tense really kind of has the force. This is not something that God did in the past. God is still engaged with these attributes in an ongoing way in creation. All right, so God's greatness. Number two, second principle, a second attribute of God, God's control. God's control. He who forms mountains and creates the wind. Now, I'll go ahead and deal with the textual issue here. Uh, some of you may have a translation that takes the word, that doesn't have the word wind and has the word spirit. And if not, you may have a note in your Bible. It may have one of those, you know, little impossibly tiny numbers beside it, right? Taking you then to the column or the note underneath, telling you that a an additional reading or secondary reading is the word for spirit. Now, that's because in Hebrew, the word, the word wind, the word for spirit, the word for breath, th- these are all the same Hebrew word. And context drives meaning, right? Context is always what determines the meaning. So there, there are some who suggest he is talking about the spirit, meaning man's spirit, S with a little s, so he, he who forms or he who creates the spirit. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Whether you'd want to see this as wind or spirit, it doesn't matter. You get to the same theological destination. I prefer the use of the word wind. I think that fits better with the phrase before, given Hebrew poetry's tendency to, to give me, you know, couplets, lines that pair together and, and expand on each other. So, I prefer to see it as wind, and, and so, but in either case, it gives you the same principle. God creates the wind. Now, that may sound like a no-brainer, but if you, think, if you think about how profound that is, especially given, say, a statement like what Jesus makes in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, you remember this interchange? And he's, he's telling Nicodemus... Uh, you know, Nicodemus wants to know about what it takes, uh, you know, to, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And, you know, Jesus engages in this and gives him this really strange statement. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus brings up some biological issues with that, right? He said, how is this possible? I mean, how, how am I going to enter my mother's womb again? And, you know, and so Jesus explains this and uses the analogy of the work of the Spirit in connection with wind. It's like the, like the wind, who knows where it comes from? Who knows where it's going? Where, where is its origin? Who is in control of it? This is what Jesus is saying about it. And, and we recognize this, right? You go outside and can you see the wind? No. You can see stuff blowing, right? But you can't see the wind. And it is one of those things. I don't know if you people think about this kind of thing. You go out and you feel a gust of wind blow you. You ever think, where'd that thing start? Where'd it come from? I know there's meteorologists who can tell me that, all right, but I'm not going to Google it, so I don't really care. I just mean, in my mind, I think this is a strange thing, the wind. Like, is, you know, is the, did a butterfly flap in India, and now I'm getting hit by this wind? Is that what's happened? Is this something that started somewhere else? So your pastor thinks weird things, all right, but you already knew that. 
The point being, where does it start? Where does it end? Who is in control of it? And we recognize, I mean, I know there's attempts to harness the wind, but can you stop the wind? Can we control the wind? Can we say the wind needs to start blowing now and needs to stop blowing now? I mean, if we could, boy, we'd have a really, bi- really good business plan along the coast, right? No, of course not. And so Amos comes along. This has always been the case, by the way. It's not, it's not unique to eastern North Carolina, right? Amos comes along and reminds the people they're about to meet with a God who creates the wind. So the thing you can't see, you can't start it, you can't finish it, you can't control it, God does. So so Amos draws our attention then to God's control. Here's a God in His greatness, and then a God in His control. Let's go on to number three, and that's God's knowledge. God's knowledge. Notice that, that third phrase, who declares to man what his thought is. Once again, we got to deal with the textual issue, so I'm going I'm to see what I'm working with out here. The New King James does this, and I want to see what other translations do this. The, the, who declares to man what his thought is? How many of you have a lowercase h in that one? Okay. How many of you have an uppercase h in that one? Okay. So, now you know, you know, this is one of the benefits of consulting other translations. You know, you read this, if you just read it in the New King James, you, you wouldn't think anything of it. The New King James is suggesting God declares to men the thoughts of men. So, the New King James is using a lowercase h, a lowercase h to, to, descri- to mean his, meaning men. These other translations that use a capital H are saying, no, no, what Amos is saying is, it is God who declares to men what God's own thoughts are. Now again, I don't know that it ultimately matters which track we take, because we end up in the same theological point. Either way, it makes the same point, that the knowledge that is accessible to us, whether it's knowledge about ourselves or knowledge about God, only comes to us because God gives it to us. Now think about both of those tracks, though. What what, what if it is this one where, where in essence, Amos is saying, it is God who declares to you what you think. Think about that. (laughs) Those thoughts which you think are uniquely yours and private and personal and only in your own heart and mind, guess who has an all-access pass? In fact, guess who knows more about your own thoughts than you do. That's a pretty profound idea, right? And that, that, that might even rattle your cage for the rest of the night to think, God knows better what you think about your thoughts than you do. So that, that can be a bit of a puzzler, I suppose, but it's well worth our thoughts. And I, and I would... I would concur with that. If if that is the track we were to take, that's what he's suggesting. And this would be a profound thing to these Israelites. Amos is saying, so the God you are about to meet is the God who is great, the God who is in control, and the God who absolutely knows every little thing about your thoughts. 
talking especially to these idolaters, right? These rebels, these sinners. But if we take the other track, which by the way is the one I prefer, if we take the other track that's, that this is a capital H, then, then, then what he is saying is, again, still the same kind of thing, but, but with a different kind of focus, who, who declares his own thoughts to man. This means, I don't know anything about God if God doesn't make himself known to me. God has to reveal himself. You want to talk about somebody of power. You want to talk about somebody who, of greatness and glory. Talk about the one who is totally inaccessible by you if he does not grant access. This, by the way, is very clear in the Bible. E- even, even the fact that God created the world as he created it, he did so for the point of communication, right? He, he embedded in his creation evidence of himself. But had he not done that, you wouldn't know anything about God. And for sure, the revelation of his word, I do not know God's thoughts without God first revealing them to me, right? Here's a God who declares his thoughts to man. So again, it, it speaks to not, not just his power, but specifically to the knowledge of God. Knowledge that comes from God about God, the knowledge that comes from God about you, who you are. Again, it, it, is, it is a profound description. So we see God's greatness, we see God's control, we see God's knowledge. Number four, you didn't think I could do it, I think I'm going to do it. God's judgment. God's judgment. Notice that next phrase, and makes the morning darkness. Now, th- this is a strange one. There's another word you could use here. You could, you could just describe this as God's sovereignty. We obviously have a reference here to God's creative power, right? What I find interesting is what appears to be a reverse of the imagery we would expect to see. I mean, we know Genesis 1 describes God making what first? Light, right? And then separating the darkness out of it. So, so, so it, would, it would be one thing to say, and, and then know, knowing that imagery, right? So God creating light, God creating dark, God making the day, God making the night. And what do you find used regularly in the Bible to describe God's gracious work on our behalf? It's often described as God bringing us out of darkness into light, right? God, the, the, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, right? Uh, God bringing me out of darkness and, and, and dawning the morning. Even phrases like, God's mercies are new, when? Every morning, right? Every morning they're new. So what I find interesting about this phrase is that it's turned. The God who makes the morning darkness. I I read in that something quite ominous. That yes, God is a God who brings us out of darkness and into light. God is a God who brings us, you know, out of the nighttime and into the daytime. But God is also the God who will take morning and make it night. 
It will take us out of mourning and into darkness. I, I would contend this is an ominous tone that is designed to evoke images of God's judgment, that this is what he's bringing. This is, that he, this is what he's about to bring upon Israel. He's going to take them out of mourning and into darkness. So it is speaking of God's judgment. Now, this is, an, you know, this is language, of course, we've already encountered in Amos. We've encountered it in all the prophets. Uh, spoiler alert, it's going to be in all the rest of the prophets, okay? This is kind of their job, to speak the reality of God's judgment and the fact that God holds people accountable for their sins. But to describe it this way, I don't know, I just, I just I found this to be just a, just a really kind of provocative idea. He makes the morning darkness. And let me give you one more, number five. And that is God's rule. <clears throat> God's rule so he finishes this, this little five-fold description of God who treads the high places of the earth. So that's a pretty common image uh, to describe the one who is superior, right? The one who rules and reigns. If he treads upon the high places, it is a way of saying even the highest place on the planet is under his feet. It is, this is very often used as, as really symbolic of rule and reign, ultimate authority. That, that means if God's treading on the high places, I mean, you can, you can, you can imagine, you shouldn't necessarily put bodily form to God, but, but imagining it like this, you know, God, God's skipping from, from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. That's, that's how low we are compared to how high He is, all right? So, you know, ju- jump, jumping from one mountain range to the next, He treads upon the high places. Also recognizing that the language of high places might have a double intent. Because high places, if you read in Israel's history, you'll find it was in the high places that they often put their idolatrous altars and shrines. And you, you read throughout the Old Testament history of Israel, and you'll find that, that part of the, the work of judgment or uh, the few times that Israel uh, revived it involved the tearing down of the high places. In some cases, it even talks about, you know, they did a partial revival. They did some things according to the law, but they left the high places. So this has a double meaning here in, in Amos. It's not just these treading upon these high places, meaning the, you know, he's showing ultimate rule, but also declaring his own rule and sovereignty uh, over, over these false forms of worship and religion. So again, to prepare to meet your God. God who is great, a God who's in control, a God of perfect knowledge, a God of judgment, and then a God who rules. And so he ends this all by saying, the Lord God of hosts is his name. The word Lord there should be in all capital letters. So this is the ultimate covenant name of God. This is a way of indicating the God of very God. Uh, this, 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 this is the, the mighty creator God, the, the, the one true God in all of his sovereignty, again, all of his glory and all of his greatness. And so he's warning them here. This is, they, they, they need to prepare to meet this God. And in this case, here's what this means. This doesn't mean prepare so that you can withstand. It just means ready yourself for the storm that is about to break upon you. It's a done deal. This is coming. So, gird yourself. Prepare yourself. Because this is the God that you are about to meet. 
There's, there's another feature here, by the way, that I think is important to emphasize and I think a good one to conclude with. So that phrase, the Lord God of hosts is His name. This is another place to emphasize this because the prophets do this regularly. Amos's focus is on Israel. His primary focus is God's judgment against Israel. But even as we saw in the opening chapter, is Israel God's only focus? No. God is not a regional God. God is not just the God of Israel. He's the Lord of hosts. The one true God is the God of everybody. Whether they acknowledge it or not, right? He is the one true God. They don't have to admit it. They don't have to worship Him. It doesn't affect this reality. This is who He is. He is the Lord God of hosts. So this is where this becomes important because it's not just Israel that needs to prepare to meet this God. Everyone should prepare to meet this God. There's really only two ways you can do this. Two ways you can try and prepare to meet God. You could do it standing on your own righteousness. You could prepare to stand face to face with the God who forms the mountains, creates the wind, declares to man his thought, makes the morning darkness, treads the high places of the earth. You could decide to meet that God and present to him your good works. It's going to be a bad moment. That's one way people try and prepare to meet God. They, they try and, and, and have more good works than bad, and hopefully, hopefully that will give them the armor they need in order to stand before God. But we know that doesn't work. No, instead, how can you actually prepare to meet God? You can only prepare to meet God in Christ. I mean, in many ways, this verse, verse 12, is a great evangelistic verse. And, and, and I get why there are people who will put this on the side of the road, in a sense. People need, though, more context and teaching, so I don't know how much help it is. I just mean this idea, prepare to meet your God, because every single person, every human being on the planet that was, is, and will be, will stand before this God. And the only way that you will hear Him say, enter into your rest, is if you come covered in the blood of the Lamb, the one who atoned, the one who met God on the cross and bore in his body God's wrath against sin. How do we prepare to meet God? We prepare to meet God by trusting in Christ, availing ourselves of God's means of salvation, of having this great exchange where I give up my unrighteousness and I get his righteousness. And this is the message that we do need to be preaching to this world. This world does need to hear this. I'm not saying they don't also need to hear that God forgives their sin and God loves them and God is a God of grace and mercy. Yes, but they also need to know they are accountable to this God and God will hold them accountable for their sin. Somebody will die for their sins. So who's that going to be? So that should, that should be the message I think that is on our, on our lips. Prepare to meet the Lord. You will face Him. And maybe this is even good to remember in the days we find ourselves in, right? When we see such blatant expressions of rebellion and pride and ego and sin, not only globally, but even in our own nation, right? People standing and declaring as a value in the very center of our own government, 
that what he needs to protect is the right of women to kill babies. Prepare to meet your God. And it's the God not that you get to decide what he is. It's this one. Prepare to meet him because you will stand before him. And so you and I as believers can then rest. It's intimidating, right? I mean, these these are harsh words, but we can rest in the fact that my Savior has already met this God for me and and borne the wrath of this God in Him so that we might stand before Him. We can meet our God and knowing His grace and His mercy, His love and His forgiveness and His blessings forevermore. Well, next week we'll jump into the next chapter, all right? We'll move ahead with, with the third message of Amos. As, uh, as he continues to speak to the powerful and influential in Israel and declare God's message to them. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering your people, privileged to be here, and grateful for not only the way your word reveals you to us in, in, in rather strong and, and stark and even intimidating ways. We, we are grateful to know you in your glory and holiness and transcendence. And, and may that image always remain with us. At the same time, we are grateful to know that in Christ, we are prepared to meet you as our God. Because in Christ, our sins have been atoned for. And so now we meet you not as our judge, but as our Father. And we thank you for it. I thank you for these who've come out tonight and willingness to be a part of this time of prayer and studying your word. I pray they would know your blessing upon them. I pray that you'd grant them wisdom as, as they go about their days, the roles you've, you've given them to fulfill in the days to come. And may they do so in faith and obedience and to the glory of your name. And we pray that you'd gather your people back together again. And we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.